0: Thanks, Bob. You, you might, if you've got a Bible, you might like to keep it open there. Uh, but how about we uh, pray as we come to God's word? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful narrative. Uh, and we thank you that you speak and that you speak to us through this. And so, Lord, we pray that as we, in time when we leave this afternoon, that we would leave uh, a changed people that you would continue your good work in us for your glory. Amen. Uh, All religions lead to God, uh, or all religions lead to heaven. Uh, That's what they say, isn't it? Uh, uh, You know, do whatever works for you. Uh, Choose your own adventure. So why not say, yes, of course, I'm a Christian, but just take up the bits of the Christian faith that you happen to like and ignore the others. Uh, Why not take a bit of Buddhism if you're into some of that? Take the aspects that you like and mix it with your Christianity. Take the bits that you like from, from both. Best of both worlds, someone might say. Why not pay your dues, so to speak, to the God of the Bible on, let's say, a Sunday afternoon, but then go on living for the God of material wealth during the week? Why not worship the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also the person and people who make you feel special, whether they be actual people or just likes on Insta? Uh, It would be arrogant uh, to say this if it was not true, but the Bible makes that massive claim, doesn't it, that there is one true God, uh, a loving God who created all people to live in loving relationship with him, that he is in control and he alone is to be worshipped. And that's really the message of this passage, 1 Kings 18, that Bob just read for us. But the narrative of 1 Kings, it's really the story of the rise and the fall of an empire. Chapter 18, what we're looking at this afternoon, uh, that's where the Israelites, uh, God's people of old, hit rock bottom. But 1 Kings, it begins on a positive note. Uh, King David is still king. Uh, And though he's old, he has the kingdom in his hands. He passes it on to his son Solomon. And, And things are great. Israel's a world power and going from strength to strength. And you may know that real high point is where Solomon builds that magnificent temple in Jerusalem. Israel is a world power and things look good. But when things are looking good... When everything seems to be going well, circumstances go from good to bad and from bad to worse. Yes, Solomon, despite all of his God-given wisdom, falls into sin and is led astray by his many wives who worship other gods. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 6, we read, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father did. And from chapter 12 through to chapter 16, that the decline of this great empire, it continues, the, the once united kingdom, you know, of the 12 tribes, or the 12 families, it breaks. it splits in two, with, with 10 of the families forming a northern kingdom and two forming a, a southern kingdom, Israel, the once world power, becomes a joke by the time we get to chapter 17 a man by the name of ahab is the king of the northern kingdom and it said of ahab in chapter 16 verse 30 that he did more evil in the eyes of the lord than any of those before him yeah this guy's bad and already before him there's been a whole string of dodgy rulers but ahab is the worst he marries An evil woman named Jezebel, a foreigner who worships Baal, the the very kind of woman that the Lord instructed his people not to marry. And Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, she doesn't even have that popular view, you know, do whatever works for you. No, there's only one God for Jezebel. She's a Baal worshipper through and through, and she takes it upon herself to, to wipe out, to try and wipe out All of the Lord's prophets. Uh, King Ahab, he too, worships and serves this this Baal God, uh, whom he sets up an altar for in the temple that he built for this God. And this God, this Baal, was believed to be the God of fertility. Uh, Not in the we want more kids sense, but in this agricultural setting that the people were living in. It, It was... Baal that the people looked to for rain and a successful crop. It was Baal that the people looked to, therefore, for survival. And so with things at an all-time low, Elijah turns up out of the blue. Now, we don't know much about him at this point in the narrative, but he's the Lord's prophet, the very kind of person that Queen Jezebel is set on killing, And you may know the Old Testament prophet, it brings God's word to God's people. And that's exactly the first thing that Elijah does. He declares to King Ahab that there will be famine, that there'll be drought. The country faces famine for three years. And you imagine it, well, the people are struggling to feed themselves. And it even gets to the point where the king is considering killing his animals before they starve to death. The once prosperous kingdom of Israel is in fragments. The king worships a foreign god. Israel is in darkness. The people are desperate. And something big is set to happen. Yeah, chapter 18. Elijah comes to the king, and on behalf of the Lord, he, he issues that file, uh, that that challenge. He proposes a competition. Let me just read verse nineteen of chapter eighteen. Have a look if your Bible's there. He says, "Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal and the four hundred prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table." This is something of an occasion, isn't it? Summon the people, all the people. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, uh, I did cubs for a little while, but they, uh, they gave me homework, so I quit. Uh, but my brother did cubs, and he progressed to scouts. And at scouts, they would have uh, survival challenges from time to time. And, and one of these challenges was a firelighting competition. Uh, The team that would win, uh, they won a a great big razor-sharp lock knife with their name engraved on it. They they weren't allowed to use matches or a lighter. And my brother's team won. I I don't know how they did it, uh, but I remember being very jealous about this lock knife, uh, which I know he, he still protects today. Now from his teenage boys. Uh, here, Elijah, he, he, it's just a similar challenge, isn't it? A firelighting competition. And as Jen said, the challenge is to see whose God is more powerful, Baal or the Lord. And, and notice in verse 19, it's, Elijah gives the Baal prophets the home ground advantage. You know that in sport, the home ground advantage is key. Uh, Though we saw last Sunday night that it made no difference in the state of origin, uh, if that means anything to you. Anyway, typically the home ground advantage is key. Usually it is, isn't it? Uh, Anyway. Uh, The Baal prophets have it. Mount Carmel is where they used to worship and sacrifice to this Baal god. But see too that the the prophets of Baal, they also have the advantage of numbers. Uh, It's 450 prophets against one. The odds are stacked against Elijah and the Lord. Uh, Verse 23, let's look at this competition. I'll, I'll read, get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Pretty simple challenge. The God who lights the fire is the true God. And Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first. It's kind of him, isn't it? They prepare the bull. They call on the name of Baal. Notice from morning till noon. Six hours, is that? That's a long time, isn't it? Uh, verse 26b, O Baal, answer us, we read, they shout. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And in verse 27, we have that wonderful uh, example of biblical sledging or div- divine sarcasm, if you like, uh, And if you're looking to justify your sledging on the cricket field or whatever sport, this is is where you go, I reckon. And we read, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder. He said, surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or travelling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. 450 prophets dancing around this altar for hours and hours. And you picture Elijah just sitting back, giving it to the 450 prophets. It'd be funny if it wasn't so sad. Verse 28, you notice their response to Elijah's taunting? They shout louder and slash themselves with swords and spears as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. A God that doesn't hear is a God that doesn't answer, a God that doesn't act. The prophets of Baal dancing around for hours all day. Uh, trying to manipulate their God into action, slashing themselves, yelling, trying to get his attention. They get nothing. They don't even get a response because they're crying out to a powerless God, a God that does not even exist. If you've got your Bible in front of you, just look back with me at verse 21 for a moment. You picture the scene, all these people are gathered on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Well, the people obviously have seen that Baal is not God. He doesn't answer. Soon they'll see that the Lord is God. He he does answer. But this problem, it's not uncommon, is it? This problem of wavering between opinions. Yes, I'll worship the Lord, but I'll also trust in this or that. I'll worship the Lord, you imagine the Israelite of old thinking. But I live in this place where everyone around me trusts in this Baal God for the survival of the crops and therefore so will I. No, to do that is not trusting in the Lord at all. But perhaps more likely for us, all these years later on a Sunday afternoon, I'll worship the Lord. Yeah, I'll worship the Lord, the God of the Bible. I've seen the evidence. I know that he's a loving God that sent his son to to restore me to relationship with him. I'll worship the Lord. But I live in this place where People trust in the bank balance, thinking that this life is all that there is. No. Or or I'll worship the Lord, but but on my terms and in my way, for I live in this place where the individual is their own authority. No. See, just as that Baal God in One Kings didn't answer, those other things that we worship today ultimately will not answer. They will not come through with the goods. And that's a huge claim, isn't it? It's a massive claim. Uh, we, um, we, this morning, were playing with some of um, our kids' friends and their families and thinking about their world, the way they view the world. This life is all that there is. Uh, he who makes the most money wins. And the Bible claims there's a loving God who made you to live with and for him forever. It's a huge claim, especially when those things may appear to meet our needs for a time, as we choose whatever tickles our fancy. Uh, The bold claim of the Bible, there's a loving God who made us to live in loving relationship with him. We're not to trust in or worship any God other than him. Our hope, my hope, it's not to be in my family or a comfortable lifestyle or part of another religion that I happen to like, but solely in the Lord, the God who answers by fire, as Elijah is about to show us. Do you notice that the prophets of Baal, they had all day to call out to their God, dancing, yelling, cutting themselves. Elijah doesn't have all day, but see what he does, verse 30. He repairs the altar of the Lord, which is in ruins. In ruins because the people hadn't been worshipping him. And he takes those 12 stones, 12 stones representative of the 12 tribes. Or families descended from Jacob, a reminder of the Lord's unbroken covenant. And he sets up the altar with the, the bull and the, the wood and he digs the trench. And then to remove any doubt of trickery, he gets the people to cover it with water, not once, not twice, but three times, drenching everything and filling up the trench. And he prays, verse 36 these prayers is wonderful isn't it O lord god of abraham isaac and israel let it be known today that you are god in israel and that i am your servant and have done all these things at your command answer me O lord answer me so these people will know that you O lord are god and that you are turning their hearts back again Three things, I reckon, to notice. Firstly, notice who Elijah addresses in this prayer, not just a God, some God, any God. No, he's crying out to a known God, a personal, relational God, who's revealed himself in history, the Lord, the God of Abraham. You remember the promises from Genesis 12? I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless all the peoples of earth. Through you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, And Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the Lord who rescued them from slavery in Egypt, the Lord who has already proven himself time and time again, the Lord who saves, the God who keeps his promises. Next notice there's nothing flash about how he prays. No no shouting, no dancing, no cutting of himself. He's not trying to manipulate this God that he prays to into action, but he simply speaks. No need to be flashy, to use big words and be long-winded or put on a strange voice. And the final thing to notice about Elijah's prayer, its purpose is to ask the Lord to come and show himself. Do you see that? Elijah wants all these people gathered Those who don't know the Lord, to see him and trust in him. The prayer is not about Elijah, but it is a prayer for the people. Verse 37, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are doing what? Turning their hearts back again. Elijah desperately wants the people to know that the Lord is God. And that there is no other. And that the Lord is turning their hearts back. Isn't that a wonderfully gracious thing to do? The Lord who rescued these people from slavery. And now they're dabbling in these other gods. Yet the Lord is here to turn the hearts of the people back to himself. And we see that after prayer results come, verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell down and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil licked up the water from the trench and when all the people saw this, they did what? They fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The real God answered powerfully, visibly, burning up the altar. The people could do nothing but respond, the Lord, he is God. God and and as that narrative continues Elijah cleans up the mess so to speak he has the prophets of Baal seized and slaughtered in the Kishon Valley now that might seem a bit harsh to us today 450 people slaughtered but it is a reminder that God takes his honor very seriously uh, th- th- this is the Old Testament way of dealing with a false prophet, and-, and you can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 13, where worshiping other gods is absolutely forbidden. That was the Old Testament way. Well, what's the New Testament way uh, of dealing with a false prophet? It's to preach, it's to proclaim Jesus. it's to pray to pray and preach and that's why the crusades were wrong and that's why we never ram the gospel down people's throats but we wrestle for them in prayer as we speak of jesus just take a step back with me for a moment Uh, what's happened in this one one kings in one kings israel has fallen Israel has fallen from that magnificently high point where Solomon built that temple in Jerusalem. Fallen to God's people splitting into separate nations and being led by bad kings who are often worshipping other gods. But despite this, and despite old Queen Jezebel trying to kill, almost wiping out all of the Lord's prophets, Despite the persecution of those following the Lord, despite this, the Lord is God. Notice the Lord was able to raise up his man, the prophet Elijah, to speak his words to his people. And notice the Lord had control over the seasons, the very thing that that Baal God was meant to be in control of. And notice that against And despite the overwhelming odds, the Lord, he is God. And it's remarkable, isn't it, that today this same God continues to call people to himself, to turn our hearts away from the bank balance and the choose your own adventure and the family and the whatever else, and to the worship of him. And today we don't have a prophet on a hill calling fire down from heaven. But we have Jesus, the son of God, who entered history and gave himself for us that the consequence of us turning away from the Lord might be dealt with. And we have God, the Holy Spirit, turning our hearts back again that we might live in loving relationship with this God who made us, that we might become a part of, not God becoming a part of our plan, but that we might become a part of his grand plan. Now, I reckon you've done reasonably well listening there this afternoon. So we're going to finish up, and I I want to finish up by just saying the same thing that Elijah said to the people, really, really. What did he say? How long will you waver between two opinions? Stop wavering between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. If the Lord is God, worship him. If the Lord is God, centre all of life around him. If the Lord is God, live for him and no other thing. But if not, we'll just go and do some other thing. How about we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the way that on that mountain uh, you used... Uh, drought, famine uh, as a huge visual aid to show that you are God and there is no other. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would remind us of who you are so that our hearts might always turn to you. Lord, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus you clearly show us that you are God, that in him we have a man, the God-man, who won victory over sin and death, who rose and is ascended and who is still calling people to come and follow. Lord, we thank you for the way that you turn our hearts to you as you apply your word through your spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for adding to your gospel, to, to worshipping things aside or in addition to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us leave this place with a great resolve to live for you and no other and heavenly father it's our prayer that you would be adding to our number day by day those who are being saved lord we're conscious that there are thousands that there are hundreds of thousands around us who don't yet know you who don't even know the name of jesus And so we pray that you would be bringing more into your family for your glory as we enjoy you forever. And we pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.